The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. A few of you in this room were alive 81 years ago at Christmas time, and if you were even a few years old, you would remember that Christmas like no other, because December 7 of 1941 was that day that lived in infamy. As early that morning in Hawaii, in Pearl Harbor, the the Pacific Fleet was preemptively bombed and, and, and almost completely destroyed our armed forces there, that the firepower rained down, and the world saw the dark clouds. The world saw the, the water that was darkened with the blood of thousands of sons and servicemen. There was no peace on earth that Christmas or a number of Christmases after that. It was World War II, as you know. The kids here have been practicing for Christmas choir next week. There was a young girl named Tony living in Hawaii who was really excited for the Christmas pageant that they had been practicing for the next week. But of course, all of that was canceled. And in kids, I want you to imagine this. For a long time after that, this young girl, Tony, everywhere she went, she had to carry a gas mask with her. And there were continual drills where, where people would seek shelter if, if there was another bombing raid. If you had been in Hawaii during those bombings, if you had seen all those things that came on that land, or even from a distance, if you were alive then, you'll never forget that. To this day, explosions still The sounds of that still haunt Tony. She's still alive. She lives in the Sacramento area. There was a recent Sacramento Bee article about here. But anyone who was alive in those times will never forget what they saw and what they heard. Debbie Nudo's father, some of you remember, was a Pearl Harbor survivor. He was here. He was a part of this church for some years when we were meeting in this building as well. We need to never forget that great generation. Grandparents and, and, and older believers here, you need to keep telling us. World War II was a, was a time that there were many attacks that came on Japan, came on Japan's land from the sky. The, the U.S. firebombed the cities of, of the nation, including Tokyo. One night in Tokyo, over 100,000 died that night. But the hard-hearted emperor kept stubbornly refusing surrender. Things would get darker for the nation before there would be any hope or light of peace. Even months after Germany surrendered, Japan was not surrendering and the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on two cities of Japan and in a matter of days after that, The empire admitted defeat. Their emperor said this, If they kept fighting, it would mean an ultimate collapse and obliteration of the nation. How are we to save the millions of our subjects 
or to atone ourselves before the hallowed spirits of our imperial ancestors? The Bible gives the answer to that question. The Bible presents to us how peace can actually come. And there is only one way of atonement. And it's the only way for all nations. And it has saved millions. And so I want you to turn in God's Word to Exodus. But I want to remember and and think about that story that we've been learning about where Egypt originally wanted to wipe out a future army of Israel in chapter 1. They did a a preemptive strike, if you will, on the, the generation of boys because Pharaoh said that he feared they would join enemies in war against Egypt. That they would join a, a coalition of war against Egypt. And so he, he seeks to wipe out the sons of a future army there. The mass killing of, of a generation of boys. But God was not a sleeping giant. God was awake. God was well aware. And God would declare war on Egypt in response. The blood of the Nile had been darkened with the blood of the sons of Israel When God comes through Moses, God turns the Nile River to blood in judgment to signify that he has not forgotten. He would not forget what had happened there in that river. And in Exodus 7, 8, 9, and 10 are God's attacks on land and sea and air all over the land. He's also attacking the spirits of their gods, their ancestors. And there's two more bombs God is going to drop. And it's finally coming to the point where it is going to be a matter of days before Egypt admits defeat. But last week we saw God was really going after the very heart of the nation and the heart of their ruler. He was raining down fire. He was devastating the land of Egypt to show that they have no atonement. They have no option but surrender. And others in the world alive in that time saw and heard and would not forget. So in Canaan and different places all around the world, in the Arab lands and different places, we'll hear later in the story of people who heard and saw what had happened that God had done. And just like Tony, some of you maybe grew up practicing drills with bomb shelters or or maybe storm cellars if you lived in the Midwest where storms would come. God is in this last plague we looked at. He offers shelter. He offers a place in the storm that's going to come. In chapter 9, verse 19, as he scorched the earth in Egypt, there was a, if they brought their people and their animals into shelter, they could be saved from this deadly firestorm. There's mercy being offered even to the enemies. And in chapters 8 through 9, God's people in Goshen were protected from those pestilences and the terrifying flying creatures or the destruction of the fields and death. None of that touched Israel at all. Even as the army of locusts invaded Egypt, they did not touch God's people. And Psalm 91 is a psalm that kind of sums up what had been going on for Israel as opposed to Egypt He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He will save you from the deadly pestilence. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the plague that strikes at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near to you. You will only observe with your eyes 
and see the punishment of the wicked, God says. And he says of his own, I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. That's what's going on. And today we're going to see the Almighty protecting his son Israel and punishing the wicked with a terror of night plague. Look at Exodus chapter 10, and this is plague number 9. Let's pick up in chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you will die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. We're going to look at the rest of chapter 11 in another message. But after the darkness, the final bomb is going to be the death of thousands of sons of Egypt. It may have been more than 100,000 in a single night. But there's already a mutiny forming against the, the dictator. Earlier in chapter 10, they're saying, Don't, can't you see we're already ruined? We see that in other countries with dictators, even Russia and China recently, but we see that throughout history. But what Pharaoh wants to do is he wants to temporarily, conditionally surrender. He wants to try to save face he wants to try to act like he's in control. We see this with leaders as well. They want to, as they're losing control, they want to act like they're in control. He says, I'll let you go, but, but sacrifice in the land of Egypt is what he said first. And, and then he said, but, but you can go, but don't go far. You know, don't, don't go three days. And then in chapter 10, he also says, okay, you can, the men can go, but you've you got to leave the little ones behind. And, and then... And then now he says, okay, the little ones can go, but you've got to leave the, the animals, you know, the, the animals for sacrifice. You've got to leave those here. And in chapter 11, verse 5, God is going to say, Egypt's little ones and animals are going to die, every firstborn. And in verse 8 of chapter 11, Pharaoh's officials are going to bow. There's going to be an unconditional surrender. In fact, they're going to pay them to leave. They're going to deplete their resources to give to them as they go. But this is all part of the bigger story 
of the Bible where on judgment day every knee will bow. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's start with this story. Number one, I want us to try to feel the darkness in Exodus. I think we have a slide that'll show you where we're going. Feel the darkness. And then we need to see the light. And this is, again, part of a bigger story. There's another Exodus that we're going to look at. And then we'll look at our application in this time of Christmas. But we need to, first of all, feel the, the, the languages that this is a darkness that you could feel. Feel the darkness. You ever feel that kind of darkness and you can't even, you can't even see anything in front of you? We, we don't have a lot of that where we live but there's a, a kind of darkness that can force you to, all you can do is feel around. All you can do is just grope. And some even translate it that way. This is even worse than anything we've ever experienced because they're not only feeling it, it is, they're, they're feeling the force of it that is keeping them down. Look at verse 23. They did not see one another, chapter 10, verse 23, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. This is far worse than a stay-at-home order. This is, everything has, has been shown to be out of order in the country. Everything's been destroyed, and you're, you're forced to stay down at home. You can't even get up in your place or go outside. I try to feel the force of this. You're on your back, and all is black in all the land of Egypt for 72 hours. And it says Israel had light in their dwellings, which almost sounds to me like Egypt couldn't even have light in their dwellings. They couldn't even maybe light candles because of the darkness was so intense that there was no light. There's no moonlight. There's no any, any light, peripheral lights like we have. And this is, Egypt was the land of the sun. It was known for being the land of the sun. It was known most famously for being where they worshiped the sun and gods of the sun. How would those gods feel now? But there's more than that. Israel needed to feel how dark the idolatry of Egypt was and the worship of false gods, how dark and empty that is. So earlier in chapter 10, the the locust plague showed that Anubis, their god in Egypt of the guardian of the fields, he's not able to guard the fields from the true Lord. These other gods of the crops are not to be worshipped either. They're not in control. They can't do anything for the crops. It's Yahweh who's in control of the fields and the locusts and all things. The Lord is the true God of thunder. That's what he brings also in this, in this plague. He's bringing down the hammer. He's bringing down hail. He's, there's these supposed sky goddesses and storm gods that are just being crushed in the process. Fire and lightning is falling on man and killing man and beast. It's breaking open every tree, the text says. He's dismantling these gods. And as we've seen before, our gods may be different today. There's different gods people worship today from materialism to Mormonism to moralism. Moralism, just being moral doesn't save either. But many put their trust in that. There's idols from Catholicism to cultural Marxism. There's behaviorism can become this thing that people put hope in 
as well as Buddhism and all of its gods. There's Hinduism, but there's also humanism that sees man as the measure of all things, and he's basically good. There's racist nationalism, and there's just regular narcissism. There's, there's all kinds of ideologies that can become idolatries, and they cannot save. Those things cannot save. They actually enslave people. But what God's doing here is he's taking out, look at Exodus 10, 21. He's going to take out the sun on Egypt, and in the process, he's going to take out their sun god, Ra. Ra, you've probably learned about him if you've learned about Egypt. Or, or Horus, where is Horus now, their god of sunrise? There's no sunrise. Now, where is Atum, their god of sunset, who supposedly controlled that? This no sun was also a, a disc on their god of the sun disc. His name was Aten. Where's Aten, the, the sun disc god? And even at night, God allows no moonlight from the god Khonshu, uh, the god of moon night fame, Khonshu. Bill Riken says the supreme deity in their national pantheon was Amen Ray. Here's what they said of him He who has no opponents among the gods, Amen Ray. The Egyptians believed that this solar deity was their creator, and they identified Pharaoh as the son of Amun-Re, the sun god on earth. That was Pharaoh. And so in school, in, in their education, children were instructed to worship Pharaoh, living forever with his majesty in your hearts. This is a quote. He is Re by whose beams one sees. So we see by Pharaoh's beams and light, he is to be Lord of their hearts. And sometimes they even prayed to him, saying, Attend to me, O solar disk of mankind that dispels darkness from Egypt. So this would be one of their prayers. Attend to me, solar disk. Dispel the darkness of Egypt, but he can't do it. He can't dispel the darkness. And so we have many gods, but you might say our supreme deity isn't the sun. It seems to be the self. We honor, we admire, we, we love, we esteem self more than anyone or anything. We depend on our self abilities. We admire our self-accomplishments. And there's, there's a whole vocabulary of words hyphenated with self as to how that looked. We devote nearly all of our attention to making our own plans for ourselves, meeting our own needs for ourselves, serving the interests of ourselves, satisfying the pleasures of ourselves. And we even complain about all the problems that we have. It's all about us. We idolize Self, and we need to turn from the darkness as well. Not just Egypt. We need to turn from the darkness of self or whatever it is that would eclipse the Lord of light in our hearts. What God is doing here is He is scheduling a blackout for three full days to show that He alone has the power. The gods of sun, self, any other gods are, are being shown to be powerless here. They have no power. God is blotting out the light, but he is also mocking false gods outright in the process. In fact, God's going to later say, idols have eyes, 
but they cannot see. There's no light in them. They have feet, but they cannot move. And, and that's actually what's happening here. The Egyptians can't see. They can't even move in this paralyzing pitch darkness. The, the whole empire of Egypt is immobilized, and their gods are seen to be impotent. For three days. Why three days? Maybe because... Pharaoh had just denied the request to let God's people go three days' journey into the wilderness to worship. And so now, for three days in Egypt, they're not going to be able to worship their gods. They're not going to be able to do anything at all. Those three days, they can't see their hand. They can't even stand, it seems. It's a darkness they feel and that forces them to be still and know that God is God, and there is no other, and he will be exalted in the earth. And so this is actually what breaks Pharaoh, breaks him down. He's not completely broken down, but in verse 24, he says he'll let them go, and even with their families now, but without their animals, to worship by sacrifice. He's surrendering, but it's like he's saying, I surrender some. I surrender some, and of course the God of the Bible calls us to surrender, what, all, not some. And and again, we need to not just think about back then, some maybe are happy to have little ones come to church, but there's no sacrifice of their life that they're willing to do. They're not serving, wanting to sacrifice self much for their church community. Maybe they go to church one day for an hour and in some change, but for the rest of the week, there's very little the family does with people of the church, even that day or the other six days. Maybe some give of some of their time, but they give zero percent of their income or their resources or give really no thought to how they can serve others that are sitting around them, worshiping with them during the week. And as, as we look at this, we need to ask ourselves, and I need to ask you do, you, do you try to keep what's valuable behind? Are you willing to do this, but, but you don't want it? That's untouchable over here. Maybe it's not livestock for you, but maybe it's your lifestyle. Are you, are you unwilling to change your lifestyle for what Christ would call you to? What about your time, your talent, and your treasure? Are are you really surrendered to the Lord in that? Because if Jesus, I think it was Hudson Taylor said, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he is not your Lord at all. And your heart is in darkness. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve two masters. It's it's got to be all or or nothing. It's got to be idols or Emmanuel. It's got to be self or the Savior. And of course, as believers, we don't do that perfectly, but that's our desire. We want to keep continually giving our all and, and, and turning everything over to him. And that's what Moses is saying here in verse 26. He's actually instructing the king. Listen to the boldness of Moses, verse 26. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve. We must worship as God calls us to. There's no compromise There's no concessions that he's going to make with the world. There's no holding back to 
truly follow the Lord is to, to give him our all. And he tells Pharaoh, you're not going to get one hoof. You're not even going to get one part of one of our animals. And I, and I love this because remember when Moses was originally going to speak to Pharaoh, he's like, how, how am I going to be able to, 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 to speak to Pharaoh? You know, I got a heavy tongue or whatever. He doesn't seem very slow of speech here, does he? He, he, Pharaoh says, don't see my face. And Moses replies, yep, I won't see your face again. I was listening to Abner Chow. He's a Hebrew professor preaching and teaching, teaching through this. And he, he said that this is a mic in, in, the, in the text, in the Hebrew here. When you read this, this is really a mic drop moment because Pharaoh is saying, don't see my face again. And Moses is saying, you know what? You're right. I will never see your face again. Boom. Because we're out of here. We're not going to see your face again. But Pharaoh's heart is still hardened and darkened at the end of this chapter. But we can't end here because, again, this applies to us. The New Testament uses the same sort of language warning us not to be like the world, not to be like the pagans who walk, Ephesians 4 says, we're not to walk like they do in the darkened understanding due to the hardness of their heart. We're not to walk in that way like like those whose hearts are are darkened and and hardened in their understanding. Jesus calls us to serve him and to, to hold nothing back and no turning back. And so if you don't yet love the Lord, if you're not yet seeking to follow him as your Lord, you are in the darkness now, and the word of God says there is also an eternal outer darkness for those who do not know Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. And so that takes us to the second point as we feel the darkness here. We also need to see the light, and we need to see how this connects to the story of Scripture because Pharaoh had a a chip on his Shoulder. He thought his government was all wonderful. He saw himself literally as the father of peace and order. He had some of those titles for himself. He was seen as the source of light. Literally, they prayed to him as the source of light. He was supposedly the mighty God over Egypt, working with all these other gods. His counsel was supposedly everlasting, even beyond his life. And in the, the pyramids and some of the ways they entombed that, they believed they would still speak beyond the grave. But now, what do we have? Darkness over all the land of Egypt. Egypt can barely walk around in that deep darkness. And then where Israel dwelt, there is much light that's shining. And this is what the prophet Isaiah would pick up on later. He would write a whole bunch of prophecies that tie in with talking about another exodus that was going to come. He uses these images, but there's, there's more to come in the future. Here's what Isaiah 9 says, "...the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone." And then it goes on to say, "...for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." This is, this is what Christmas is all about. And, and Christ actually is all that Pharaoh claimed to be and more. And Isaiah said the Messiah there will release from darkness the prisoners. 
That's what Christ said when he came back to his Nazareth synagogue. He reads from Isaiah and he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm here to release you from darkness, to release the prisoners. As one of the songs says, long lay the world in sin and darkness, pining till he appeared. And so this is 15 centuries before Christ that Exodus happens, but it's, it's already pointing us forward to the gospel, the need for the gospel that the dark world has always needed. And so turn with me to the gospel of Luke chapter 1. And I want us to think about how these two exoduses compare. There was 400 plus silent years, suffering years from the end of Genesis to the start of Exodus while they're in Egypt for 400 some years. And then an angel of the Lord speaks to Moses And then he and his brother Aaron are going to tell Israel of the good news of deliverance. In the beginning of Luke's gospel, it's it's been another 400 plus years, we call the silent years, since the end of the Old Testament. There were years of suffering, a lot of military unrest. They're under the occupation and oppression of the Romans. But now God begins to speak again. And you'll notice some similarities in the pattern. It's going to again be through the same family tree of Aaron and Moses, through this priestly line of Levi. Look at Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So this is the same family here. Verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord. So there again, we have an angel of the Lord appearing, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Sounds a lot like Moses when the angel of the Lord came. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. As we think about this story in the story we've been learning in Exodus, the original mother of Aaron also had a special son who would also live in the wilderness for decades as well, and then would come and have a message for Israel. It would also be a message that many of them would, would reject, but it would be a voice calling in the wilderness. And it started with Moses in the wilderness at a burning bush with the, these words, the Lord God of your fathers has surely visited you. I have come down to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians. This is the burning bush. You shall serve God. And God was having mercy on them and covenant grace. And he promised to Moses in Exodus 6, I swore to Abraham, I have remembered my covenant and I will redeem you to be my people. Now we have Zechariah, a priest from the same tribe as Moses and Aaron, who would have known well the Exodus story. This is what he had to learn even in becoming a priest. Look at Luke 1, verse 67, where he speaks. His father, verse 67, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And this is present tense now. It's moving in prophecy, actually, to future, what God is going to do again. Look at verse 32. 
He's doing verse 72, sorry, verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him. Almost every phrase I read there is echoing Exodus, but it's being applied to the Christmas story. That's why Exodus and Christmas are Related, And that's why God was going to deliver his people again in another exodus from the hand of, of their enemies to serve him. That happened originally to, to serve, uh, to take them out of Egypt, their enemies there, and to serve him. But Zechariah is applying that beyond their time to the enemies beyond Egypt. Verse 77 is salvation and forgiveness from sins, our enemy of sin and the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those enemies are going to be addressed in this Second Exodus. So this is not just a past tense, the Exodus. There's a future prophecy. There's a future Exodus with John and with Jesus. Another Exodus in that same pattern. The end of verse 78 is about the coming visit of Messiah or Christ, and it's using Exodus language, verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And that's going to start in chapter 2 with shepherds at night in the darkness who are sitting there watching their flocks. They see the light. They hear of peace on earth. But this had literally been experienced in Exodus 10 where Egypt sat in the darkness. And they soon were going to be in the shadow of death of their firstborns. But some of them were going to see the light. Some of them were going to fear the Lord and even follow the Lord in the Exodus. We'll see that in chapter 12. But Zechariah uses that language for the coming light of Christ. He's going to guide us as the Prince of Peace. And Christmas is when God incarnate Incarnate means in the flesh. God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The, the Word, God who created everything, he, he became flesh so that we could see the light of His glory, the glory of God in the face of Christ, as Paul says. But that's John 1.14 talking about why Jesus came and, and became man. And it says right before that in John chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from John or from God whose name was John. And this is the same son of Zechariah. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so that's the image there. The, the world, not, not just Egypt, the world is, is in this darkness, but Christ, the, the light of the world, is, is going to come and he's going to shine. He's going to light up the darkness. You might say he is the ultimate Christmas light. And I think it's fitting even this time of year we have lights shining in the darkness on many of our homes and in all around town, it, it's fitting because this is an image in Scripture of the darkness and how the light of 
the gospel, the good news of what Christmas is all about, how that needs to shine in the darkness, and we're to bear witness of the light. We're not the light by nature. By our nature, we were in darkness, but God has saved us, and we are to witness of that light, witness of Christ, just like John did. And here's how Matthew's gospel explains how Jesus would come and come out of Galilee, quote, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That's what was happening in Jesus. Even these religious Jewish people in the first century were in utter darkness, but the light dawned. And it began that silent night, didn't it? With the dawn of redeeming grace of Jesus who was Lord at his birth. So look at Luke 2, verse 8. Luke 2, 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So this again, he comes at night. Christ was born in a time of darkness, literally and spiritually. Look at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. We know these words, but think about that. All of a sudden, an angel appears, and the glory of the Lord is just, the light of it is shining all over the place. And then in verse 13, an even greater multitude of heavenly hosts are appearing, and there is light all over the place. And in verses 11 through 12, they tell them in Bethlehem, the Savior is born. And he's this newborn baby. And you're going to find him wrapped in cloths. And he's going to be lying in a manger. It's kind of interesting to think about the Old Testament deliverer of Israel. And in the first Exodus, who God used, Moses was also found as a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in an unusual wooden box. And in both cases, there is a young girl named Mary. Mary, as the Hebrews would pronounce it, was Miriam. As the Greeks pronounce Miriam, it would be Mary. It's the same name, though, that Mary's parents in the New Testament named her after that great Miriam of the Old Testament. And in both times, a baby was going to be rescued, and that baby would become who God would rescue his people through, that one. And and Moses also was a shepherd, keeping watch over his flock, when an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And an angel of the Lord told him that salvation was coming. There's these parallels all over the place in this second exodus. And notice Luke 2, verse 7, calls Jesus Mary's firstborn son. That's another connection to the Exodus story. It was in Egypt. First of all, God told Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let them go. But then he says, if not, your firstborn sons are going to die. And they would die before he would let people go. Jesus, the firstborn son of Mary, he dies to let his people go, to free them from sin. And, and in both cases, there was oppression literally and politically but also spiritually Egypt, as well as Rome in the first century. And in both cases, the child who would deliver was adopted. Moses was adopted by the the daughter of Pharaoh. Joseph, by marriage, became the adoptive 
father of Jesus and raised him as Joseph's son. And in both cases, there was an evil king killing the baby boys. We might look at that more next week. Pharaoh in Exodus 1, Herod in Matthew chapter 2. These were dark times, but in that little town of Bethlehem, there was a big God at work. In those dark streets was shining the everlasting light that we sing about, the hopes and fears of all the years. They all came together in Christ that night. There's a big God at work in that little town. And in Exodus, God gave his revelation to Israel. And his glory cloud lit them up and it led them. But I want you to look at Luke 2, 32. Luke 2, verse 32, where Simeon says that Jesus, this baby, is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So this is, he's holding this baby up. This is the light for the world. This is the, this is the glory of your people, Israel. They hadn't seen God's glory. It wasn't in the, the temple where he was at. The glory cloud had never come down to that new temple. But now in the temple, he's holding in his hands the one who is the glory, who is the light that the Old Testament had just pointed to. And verse 33, his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. They're marveling, what child is this? Simeon blessed them, verse 34, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and listen, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is a prophecy of the cross. And as Jesus was pierced through his side, Mary, I'm I think we'd remember those words. She feels like she is being stabbed right through her soul as she sees her son dying. As we're going to sing just in a few moments here, nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross is born for me, for you. This is how the King of Kings salvation brings to those who with loving hearts enthrone him. Does your heart love him? Does your heart enthrone him? And, and so this is part of the application for us. The, the purpose of, of the first exodus, God said, was so that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And we started with Egypt having darkness over all the land. That, that phrase actually gets repeated in the life of Jesus when he's on the cross. It says there was darkness over all the land. For those hours, as the sun is being blotted out again. And this time, sin is being blotted out for those he's redeeming. This time, Jesus is taking the judgment upon himself. He's, he's dying in the, in the place of others so they don't have to die. The, the firstborn of Mary is dying as the Passover lamb whose blood takes away the sin of the world for all who will believe in him, who all repent and believe and trust in him. And so this is the message that we need to share. This is the message for us as well. Bring your sin into the light, other scriptures say. Bring your sin into the light. Don't, don't hide it. Don't minimize it. There's grace in the light. Confess it to Christ. Confess it to others. Don't stay in 
the darkness. And of course, that's not the end of the story on the cross, is it? In, in Exodus 10, no one rose from their place for three days. In the Gospels, Jesus didn't rise from the place of death for three days, but then he rose. He, he conquered sin's darkness. And he rose to bring us out. And so Ephesians 5.8 says, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Be like those who rise from the dead so that Christ shines on you. And don't even participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. He says there in Ephesians 5. Colossians 1 says it this way. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. So it's like we were in that same domain of darkness, but he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All of that is pointing us forward to all of that. And what's the application there? Colossians 1 says there, give thanks. Give thanks that God has done that. Give thanks. Praise the Lord. Romans 1 says, if sinners don't give thanks to God or honor him as God, their foolish hearts are darkened. Your heart can be darkened. This is a a real practical word here. If you are complaining regularly instead of thanking God regularly, you can go to a dark place. It's a dark place to be. Your home can be a dark place. Your heart can be a dark place if praise is not rising up. From you, and Philippians 2 says, we need to do everything without grumbling or complaining so that we can shine as light, so that we can hold forth the word of light to this world that is, that is so dark. First Peter 2 says, you are a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We need to proclaim that. And what a great time of year to do that, to thank him, to proclaim him, to be different than unbelievers you, you work with or that you'll see or in your family, to seek to how can I speak of the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness into the light. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. So let's let our light so shine that others may see it and that they may glorify God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray for his help. Our great God, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to be that light that this world needed. And Lord Jesus, who is the light of the world, calls us to reflect that light and to be the light of the world, the light of reflection, the light of witness. So Lord, I pray that you would bless our witness even as we invite people to to Christ or to Christmas services, that you would bear fruit, and that you would help us to proclaim your excellencies. We pray all these things in the name of Emmanuel. Amen.